0: You, thanks so much for listening to the show. This podcast is sponsored by Made to Move Physical Therapy, and we believe that movement is medicine. If you have been dealing with pain that's preventing you from doing what you love, and if you're looking for a healthcare provider to help you meet your goals, then go to made2movept.com/contact us. That two is the number two. Fill out the form and reference the Healthy Charleston podcast. Listeners get ten percent off their first session. Thanks for tuning in to the Healthy Charleston Podcast. This is your host, Hannah Briel. And on today's episode, we have Emily Dar, an interventional orthopedist and rehab doctor in Charleston. Emily and I had a really great conversation about the current state of our healthcare system and how we got to the brokenness that we're at today and what things we need to be doing differently and what things we need to change in order to help our patients. Emily believes in... Looking at the patient as a human rather than just treating the pain and feels that taking the time to talk to patients, listening to their story, and getting to know them on a deeper level is always the right thing to do in healthcare. We talk about injections, regenerative medicine, and the pros and cons of steroid shots. Emily is passionate about restoring real function for her patients and finding the root cause of the issue. Make sure you're following at Healthy Charleston and at Made to Move PT on Instagram, and enjoy the show. What's up, everyone? Welcome back to the Healthy Charleston podcast. On today's episode, we have Emily Darr, Interventional Orthopedist and Rehab Doctor. So welcome,
1: Emily. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, excited to have you on. So we talked a little bit about this before, about pain management and what that is. And I know that's a part of your job, but you don't love the stigma that comes with it. Correct. Can you tell me first what being an interventional orthopedist and rehab
1: doctor means, and then we can go into pain management. Sure. So when I say pain management, it brings me to the people who are looking for someone to manage their pain strictly. So then, you know, in light of the narcotics issue we have going on today, I don't like to be known as someone who manages narcotic medicine or just medications to control people's pain. And by control meaning cover it up. Mm. Uh, rather I'd like to see a patient, diagnose them, try to figure out what's causing the pain. Is there something we can do to, to fix that, to get down to the root cause? And basically I want to restore function, whatever that function may be. You know, do you want to be a farmer again? Do you want to be able to just sit in your couch and watch TV, but you know, walk to go get something for lunch? Um, so really looking at the patient as a, a a human being an altogether functional person rather than just treating a pain is why I don't like the term pain management rather interventional orthopedist um, puts together orthopedics which is you know fixing muscles bones tendons etc and then interventionally so I do a lot of injections so epidural injections nerve blocks joint injections um, and we can inject with lots of different substances of course too not just all steroid or pain management type stuff hmm. So you originally were considering being an
0: orthopedic surgeon correct right. yes. so talk me through like what led you to Desiring that and what led you to maybe what brought you to medical school and then how that's developed into what you do and what you're passionate about now.
1: Sure. So, um, I grew up in Southern Illinois and where I'm from, you, uh, learned how to play volleyball or basketball, especially if you're a girl. If you're tall. <laughs> <Yes>. too. Yeah. <laughs> Cause it's too cold to be outside to do anything else. So I was pretty good at basketball, but I didn't like it as much as volleyball. So I chose to, um, pursue a volleyball scholarship. So that's how I got to Charleston. I was recruited by the college of Charleston. Came down in 1997 and played four years there at the College of Charleston. So, along with uh, volleyball and not preventing injuries well enough and being a tall, thin person, I had bad posture and I had bad shoulder problems. So, I had three different operations before I was oh, a freshman wow. in college. Yeah. What were your operations? Well, I had, there were two arthroscopic um, uh, shoulder surgeries. The first one was exploratory, he didn't do much, just cleaned up my labrum because I didn't really... really have a full labral this tear. When you're 16, 17. Yeah. Um, the second one was the electrothermally-assisted capsular shift, which they no longer do. Oh, my God. I don't even
0: know what that means. <laughs> oh, this
1: was like the uh, next big thing for baseball pitchers and overhead athletes. They basically go in, and it was referred to as frying bacon. They would basically heat up your anterior labrum so that it would tighten up the capsule and keep your humeral head in so you didn't sublux and causing pain. So that was performed on me, the second operation. The third operation, I finally went to uh, the well-known Dr. Yamaguchi, who I think is now retired, but he was taking care of the St. Louis Cardinals, and he opened up my shoulder and basically reattached the capsule and made it tighter. None of those helped me. I still had pain when I played volleyball, so (laughs) after those all failed. I was in college and I did a lot of rehab and, you know, um, just tried to figure it out myself. And so I I taught myself better posture. I strengthened up my rotator cuff, scapular stabilization. I was also dealing with some sesamoid issues. I actually broke both of my sesamoid bones on both sides. So I was making my own custom orthotics before it was cool to do that. Look (laughs) at you. So naturally, I was on a path to become an orthopedic surgeon to help other athletes Mm -hmm. like myself be fixed uh, more easily. Um, but then I realized very quickly, especially when I started medical school, that surgeon, surgeons are on call. They work weekends, they work long nights and I am just not a night or a weekend person. So I discovered physiatry because my mom went to somebody about her chronic leg pain. I Googled it and that was the end of it. I applied to physiatry and here I am. So what is physiatry? So it's not well known and it's hard to pronounce. Some people call it physiatry. I think the Northeast calls it. So physiatry physiatry or (laughs) physiatrist. Um, The board certification is in physical medicine and rehabilitation. The specialty was created after veterans coming home from the world wars. Nobody knew who was taking care of the brain injured patients, the amputees, the spinal cord patients, the just generally debilitated patient and how we restore function and get them back into the world. Um, so then it sort of split off into inpatient rehab and outpatient rehab, mm-hmm. probably in the 90s when it was cool to start doing injections and preventing people from having surgical procedures. Mm-hmm. So a lot of us physiatrists are now outpatient, musculoskeletal type people. Um, yeah, so that's physiatry for you.
0: So that's how PT started to, if people coming home from wars. Um, I forgot what we called ourselves, but it was very much like, we There was no need for it. And oh, yeah. then all of a sudden, there was a big need for it. And so it's just kind of developed, you know, obviously, like, over the years into, like, we have physiatry, <laughs> but we also have PTs. And it's, like, interesting that it was a similar
1: story. It is. And it's funny because most people, when I tell them I'm a physiatrist, it, unless they're a physical therapist, they have no idea what I'm talking about. Yeah. So. Yeah, I like hanging out with a physical therapist because I don't have to explain to them. I'm not a podiatrist. <laughs>
0: yes, not a podiatrist and not a psychiatrist yeah, either. Yeah, that too. <laughs> it's all of the P-itis, the, P, the right? Yes, yes. Yeah, it's also interesting that it was volleyball that like, kind of did you in. That was the sport I was playing. Really? When I got mono for six months and like couldn't play anymore. Oh. But I always had shoulder pain too. Um, and I had such a hard time with an overhead serve over and over and over again. And then like later
1: on in my next few years, like I just remember struggling with a lot of shoulder pain. Right. Especially as females where we don't have much upper body strength. So then to do it over and over and over with not enough strength, doing it improperly because you have the wrong footwork or whatever, you can really injure yourself. It's really hard to fix without proper physical therapy. And I was a
0: passer, so like the only time I ever went overhead was when I would serve. Yeah. And I also started getting like extreme anxiety about it and like super self conscious. Oh, no. Um, there it was like some games I serve would be really great, sometimes it just like wouldn't exist. And like you got to have an overhead serve as a high school volleyball player, but you know, Mono solved that problem. For well, me, you so. know,
1: beach volleyball has gained popularity now, and so okay. if you want to. You know, go back to your roots and pick up volleyball. We're always looking for a fourth.
0: Great, good to know. So it's four on
1: four. Now we're two on two. So beach volleyball. I see.
0: Okay, so you play that now too. I do. Yeah. So there's
1: there's a good group of uh, women in the Charleston area. There's a bunch of men who play too, but we all get together usually Saturday and Sunday mornings on the beach and play. Mm -hmm. It's just tough to find four women who don't have something else going on at eight o'clock on a Saturday morning, or want something going on at eight o'clock. Yes. Yeah. The young girls especially.
0: <laughs> yeah. So you had all these surgeries. You were like, okay, I'm going to be a
1: surgeon. What made you not want to perform surgeries? Uh, there was one night when I was on call as a medical student in Greenville on my away rotation where I was supposed to show them my stuff and make them want me to match in their residency program. Well, there was a hip fracture in the middle of the night, and the trauma guy on Call or whatever that night came in and he was talking about how glad he was that he had to get out of bed he was over his wife and his family he just would rather be in the OR than be at home with his family and that was the moment where I realized that is not me wow <laughs> I like my life way too much to be stuck in the OR in the middle of the night yeah for sure yeah. so he
0: didn't want to be with his family you were like oh wait I do yes and then I had okay.
1: found out about physiatry and it was a perfect. Um, a substitute or a replacement for that orthopedic surgery where I can still work with athletes and other walks of life just to restore function and to make them feel better without operating yeah it sounds like, like restoring function
0: you sound very goal-oriented like yes. whatever they want to try to do whatever their function
1: is right and whatever their goal is yeah you know, it could be a you know to return to professional athletics or just to you know sit on the couch comfortably that's fine Yeah,
0: it definitely looks different for everyone. Yeah. So can you tell me what you've been doing in the past few years and what, like, going after residency and all those things, like what
1: life has looked like for you? Well, so I finished my training up at University of Virginia, and uh, naturally I wanted to get back to Charleston where I did medical school. So I got back here. I joined the orthopedics department at MUSC, which is a great group. Um, Those guys helped me, you know, learn more about orthopedics, um, working side by side, trying to help them with their difficult problems, you know, pains that they can't figure out, don't make sense with whatever surgery the patient had, and I, I sort of was the doctor's doctor, you know, their go-to for the <clears> the strange cases. So I really enjoyed that. I enjoyed teaching medical students, um, helping train the orthopedic surgery residents. Um, got into a couple research studies, looking at SI joint fusion versus preventative um, conservative care um, did some case studies with the medical students. It was a lot of fun. Um, but then I, you know, sort of was looking for a change in my life and, um, more of a challenge. So I'm, I'm now, uh, pursuing a private practice career, uh, with an orthopedic surgery group up based in North Charleston called South County Sports Medicine. Mm-hmm. So I'll be starting up there and they've never had an interventional orthopedist. So it'll be a lot of fun just to see what happens with that. Did you ever, you said you did consider physical therapy? I did, yeah. Um, uh, Were you already in med school at that point, though? uh, No, it was in high school. Because in high school, before I had my first shoulder surgery, I did PT two to three times a week. Mm -hmm. It seemed like year-round all the time. Yeah. I have no idea how my mom afforded that now that I know what insurance (laughs) pays for PT. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I at some point realized that I wanted... um, I don't want to say I wanted to be more in control, but I wanted to be the one making the diagnosis and giving the orders per se mm-hmm. um i probably would have done fine with physical therapy it's just that for some reason i just i wanted to take it a step further and do more um you like the diagnosis part of it yeah, yeah. i liked the the mystery and figuring it out yeah yeah and then you guys get to do the hard work no
0: <laughs> no you definitely do hard work too Anytime you're, you're dealing with a, a human pain,
1: like, yeah. it's, it's hard work. Uh, you know, and I always joke to my medical students and my residents that I learned more about taking care of patients when I waited tables... Um, and when I sold real estate, then when I went to medical school, because medical school, you learn stuff like how bacteria reproduce and cells, like, how does that help me now? It doesn't. Yeah. When I waited tables and I sold real estate, I had to learn customer service. Mm-hmm. I have to convince somebody in two minutes that I need to put a needle in their back and then I might paralyze them. But don't worry. Trust oh, gosh. me. You know? <laughs> Is that exactly how you say that? For that conversation? No, not so much. <laughs> Depends on the patient's personality, of course. Yeah. I like to morph. Mm-hmm. But, um... And
0: you have to morph. You do. You have do. to adjust.
1: And the the doctors who don't, I I don't know how they do it because I'm exhausted by the end of the day talking to 25 different personalities. And then I got my kids. Oh, which have like five different personalities. (laughs) Yes.
0: I like that you say that because I feel like the exact same way. And it's it's something that you get, like you enjoy it in the meantime, it just zaps you. Yep. And then you go home and you're like, why don't I want to talk to anyone? Yes. Would you consider yourself an introvert? Oh, yes. Okay, yeah. <laughs> so it's like everyone thinks, oh, if you're you know, outgoing, if you like being with patients, you're an extrovert. It's just that it, it zaps your energy a little Absolutely. bit differently.
1: And you got to do it. I'm in sales. I'm a doctor, but I, I have to sell um, what I'm doing to the patient. And you do too. You have to sell mm-hmm. the do 10 reps of these. I promise it's going to help you. Oh, you're, it's, every part of it is a, a sale of
0: this is what I believe is going on. Do you believe me? Do yeah. you trust me? This is how we're going to get through it. And then when you go to cash base, even more of it's a sale. It's not that your insurance, your doctor already told you you have to do it. And, and that part of that is the the best part is that the patient gets to decide. But you have to be so confident and so clear with that person of like, they're coming in to buy a car usually, mm-hmm. but you have to show them what kind
1: of car exactly they're buying and, and why you think that's the car for them. Right. And then you have to... Guarantee the performance of that car. So, are the results going to happen? Oh, everyone's like, when am I going to get better? Them?
0: Yeah. When am I going to get better? And like, when can you promise that? And like, what we know now is that we can't. Right. We can't promise those things. We can be very hopeful. Like most people respond in this way, but the whole "like I can fix you" statement, I think, has probably gotten a lot of people into a lot of trouble. Oh yes. Especially uh, the guy on Doctor Death. <laughs> he oh, said yes. that all the time. I'll fix you, and someone who's confident who says that, and you're in pain, and you trust them, okay, all
1: right. Yeah. Do it. Yeah. Although death is probably not the fix they were thinking about. Ooh, when you put it <laughs> that way. Yeah. <laughs> Although so, it did fix the pain. You feel like you've
0: got a lot of that knowledge about, like, how to interact with the person through waiting tables. Yeah.
1: I mean, I... I I loved wedding tables because I was exhausted at the end of the night. and had a wad of cash in my pocket. Yeah. But, you know. <laughs>
0: it's like free food. Whenever right. Want.
1: But meeting different people. I mean, I love a new patient that just moved to Charleston since, you know, what is it? 40 of them move here a day. Oh, wow. You know, where are you from? What's going on? You know, I love meeting people, getting to know them, getting to know their personality and trying to figure out how I can help that person. And cater to their personality so that they do trust me as their doctor yep and of course word of mouth is my best advertisement so yeah exactly but there's a lot of pressure too you know you, you treated my aunt kathy and she feels great now can you fix me too mm, that's a good point <laughs> pressure how do you handle that um, you know, I I say I'm going to do my best. And I'm I'm here. I'm your doctor, and we're going to do this together. So I at least stay positive and give them confidence. Do you ever have to handle someone saying the opposite of like all the time? Yeah, I yes, that. that's the most difficult patient. Is the you know middle aged? I'm a little overweight. I'm out of shape. I lost my job. Um, And I have pain. Uh, And I said, well, have you tried this? No, I can't do that. I'm in pain. Have you tried this? I can't do that. I can't afford internet. Um, You know, there's excuses beyond what you can imagine. So then it comes to the conclusion that they probably have a little bit of depression. So, you know, a lot of what I do is psychological too. So number one, we have to address the, we don't, we're not happy with ourselves. So maybe we should treat the depression or the anxiety. And then we have to gain their confidence back that they can get better And then it's getting up to the right people and getting them to buy into the treatment options. But that negative um, thinking is really tough to overcome at first. How do you explain
0: that to people without them being like, are you telling me I'm making it up? Is it all in my head? I came here for pain. You're telling me I have depression? Because we know the relationship between all those things. But a lot of people don't. And there's still stigma. And there's still, there's just a lot of... It's difficult.
1: Yeah, it's difficult. Um, it's difficult to have that conversation, and to have the weight conversation. You know, if your your back hurts and you have an extra 150 pounds sitting on you, you know, it's 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 a no brainer for me, and the patient knows it. But who's going to address it, and how are you going to address it? So, for the depression, I like to make a joke. You know, some of those commercials say depression hurts. You know, do you feel like your depression hurts? And then we, if I can get a little giggle, we go from there, and then we talk about how. Chronic pain can cause depression. And I never really blame their pain on the depression, but I get them thinking about it, and then usually by the second visit, they'll come around and be willing to try something like a cymbalta or an SSRI to kind of get the ball rolling. Or we'll talk about their diet and how diet can change um, your stress levels and your depression. Um, and then with the people with the weight issues, I I have I learned from a attending a long time ago the best way to ask was how has your weight Ben. it's unassuming it's an open ended question yeah. and I get lots of different responses most of the time it's well it's not as easy for me as it is for you you know that's oh. a tough one to respond to because yeah I don't do much for exercise because I don't have enough time because I'm Busy dealing with patients <laughs> who need my time. I keep that to myself, but yeah. um, I, of course, a busy dealing with you. <laughs> yeah. I always say, well, you know, since I sit at home and eat bonbons all day, and I look like this, it must just be genetic. <laughs> oh, yeah, just kidding. So we always joke about it, and then we go from there. But I, I think that um, if you can reach a couple people with those questions, it was worth your time because certainly I don't get paid to you know, counsel people about their weight or the depression. Exactly. And what do you get paid for? Well, I've got to put a needle in something at that point to get paid because an office visit isn't doing it either. And that office visit's going to easily take 45 minutes once we get into the conversation. However, I keep doing it because I know that there's a few people that I've, I've, I've gotten through to that I've touched. They've written me letters. They've said I've changed their life and that's what keeps me going to keep doing it. Yeah. It's, that, that pays off, like having
0: that relationship and having that discussion because it's every doctor struggles with that, especially if you're being like, if you have to inject someone and that's the only way you're going to get paid. It's like right. I want to talk about these things. I'm not getting paid to talk about these things. I don't have time to talk about these things, but I know I need to. Yeah. So like, what do you, what do you do then? You have to take it out of your schedule. It affects you.
1: Yep. Or you write a med that you think will help and you don't explain what that medicine does and then they go home and they Google, you know, side effects and they don't take it or they start taking it and then it gets lost and, um, it's just, it's just a a snowball effect. So really taking time to talk to patients is always the right thing to do. How do we set up our healthcare to provide for that? That's a great million dollar question. I don't have the answer to it. Why isn't it set up for that? How do we get to this point? Well, my opinion is that, I think it was the 80s, um, doctors decided to bill for diagnosis codes instead yeah. of their time. Lawyers were much smarter than us in billing for their hourly rates. So when we started billing diagnosis codes, then there was these expectations that if you treat a patient for this diagnosis, this should happen. If it doesn't happen, then we're going to mm. you know, take it out on your reimbursement. Um, but then we just became a... Uh, a society that grew too quickly and became lazy and not taking care of ourselves. So we really just need to take a step back and reevaluate how we treat ourselves.
0: A lot of it. um, Eve was listening to something that called it like a mismatch disease of a lot of the things that we deal with are because we're living so vastly different than the way that we used to live that like we used to, be a lot more active our food wasn't as available so like we have all of these problems like maybe we have back pain because we aren't using our backs at all anymore it's true and like we found all these ways to add convenience into our lives and a lot of people have sitting jobs we have microwaves and like all these cool things we have cars and you you have gyms i have i think i've said this on the podcast before i have a patient who's about 75 and he's like he thinks it's so ridiculous how we've taken all of our physical activity out of our day, but then put it at the end of the day or whenever, and we go like we just crush ourselves. Yeah, it's like you sit all day and then you just go like crush yourself on the bike for an hour. Yep. And he like does manual labor and he builds things and all that, and a lot of it is like yeah we have taken out that like organic physical activity that we just always had been doing. Yep. And now we
1: have all of these problems that are related to lifestyle. Absolutely, like a diagnosis like tech neck. I've never heard of tech neck. Tech neck? Tech tech neck. It's tech neck. I think or so. Or the tech neck tech's neck. I don't know. Either way, technology has caused us to have bad necks. Oh,
0: goodness. (laughs) That's funny.
1: And I I had a young patient describe it that way. I was like, you're right. It is tech neck because you're you're bending over your phone, you're driving, you're watching TV, everything's bent forward, yet you're not doing anything in the upright position and we're not strengthening our upper upper backs You're never spending any time there. Yeah.
0: Yeah. No. So, I mean, if we can't have the conversations to figure out how our lifestyles are affecting right. our health, then, like,
1: is it ever going to get any better? It's going to be up to the patient and the person. Yeah. Not the doctor or the insurance company because they're not going to pay for it. That's why you have cash. <laughs> that's right. Cash <laughs> will be king. Yes.
0: So would you consider what you do or what you want to do? We talked about this before. Like, I would call it functional medicine. Or, like, that's kind of what people are calling it now. But you called it lifestyle medicine.
1: Yeah, lifestyle medicine is a whole new branch of medicine that has started in the last maybe five to ten years. You can actually go and get certified in it, take classes. Oh, I haven't done that, but um, the whole idea of lifestyle medicine makes total sense. And what, what appealed to me about physiatry was it sort of was lifestyle medicine without calling it that. It kind of incorporated hmm. everything into one. And then you're also interested in regenerative,
0: I can't say it, regenerative.
1: Yeah, regenerative medicine. <laughs> there you it's, go. This is definitely the future of orthopedic care. So, you know, 20 years ago you, you know, tore your, let's say more than 20 years ago, you tore your uh, meniscus playing mm-hmm. soccer and you're a 40-year-old guy. They go in there and just take out the meniscus, you know, and then we got better with orthoscopic surgery. They go in and they shave it off a little bit and put you back together and you're okay. But nowadays, all we really have is steroids, visco-supplementation. So we're going to inject you with a steroid that will make you feel better temporarily, but it might break down cartilage over time. And then oh, visco-supplementation, goodness. you know, we're just putting a physical substance in there to give you a little extra cushion. Mm-hmm. Well, we're getting better. We're not quite all the way there yet, but regenerative medicines. So we're basically taking substances in our own bodies that are known anti-inflammatory um, healing substances. They're... Um, anti-pain substances and we're spinning them out of the blood and we're injecting them back into a joint over a ligament. Um, into is this stem cell or platelet? Yeah so okay. regenerative medicine um, includes all those things. So okay. you've got the mesenchymal stem cells. I can, I'm can. i not going to be able to say that.
0: I can see it but I can't say
1: <laughs> yeah, it. <laughs> MSC is what they want us to call it instead of stem cells because stem cells are a little Different And plus, stem cells get that bad stigma. So many people still think that's what we're doing. So we're not taking cells out of fetuses that have been aborted and injecting them into your joint. That is not what's happening. I remember that debate. Like, I was definitely younger, and I was like, this is
0: horrible. Right. So you just write it off. Yeah. So
1: when we say stem cells, we're talking about mesenchymal stem cells. So we've got those, and they've got the PRP. So PRP is plasma-rich platelets. Platelet-rich plasma. Sorry, I've said it both ways. <laughs> Either way, confusing myself. But there's also PPP, platelet poor yep. and platelet-rich. So okay. it depends on if you're doing a joint or a ligament or a muscle. Hmm. We use the different ty- types. So you basically are taking stuff in your blood, spinning it down, and concentrating it, and putting it back in your body. Which, in theory, should help speed up healing, it should reduce inflammation, make you feel better, using your own body's properties. You're Mm -hmm. not using a steroid or an anesthetic that we don't really know what's doing to your tissue. So I think this is the future of orthopedic medicine. Like I said, we're not there completely, but we're getting there. It's all cash-based, insurance doesn't cover it, so that's the biggest roadblock right now, and it is expensive. Mm -hmm.
0: Why or when do you think we will get there? Do we just need a lot more research first? We need a lot more
1: research. We need a lot more data. We need the insurance companies, probably led by Medicare, to jump on board. Um, so that's what we do. We follow yeah, Medicare. Yeah, exactly. I think TRICARE actually covers a PRP injection. So if you're you know, active or a, a veteran, the problem is I think it only covers $250, and average price is probably about $600. So okay, we're yeah. getting there slowly, but we're just not there yet.
0: Yeah, there's always this thing that, like, we're practicing, like, 10 years behind what the current research is. Totally. And, like, we're teaching in schools 10, year behind, 10 years behind what the research is. Yep. It's like, how do we not get outdated?
1: Right. We do more podcasts. There we go. That's <laughs> exactly it. We get
0: this message out there. Yes. You mentioned something about the steroid and the anesthetic, and, like, not only not knowing exactly how it affects your tissues, but, like, are there any... Are there any pros and are there any cons to using a steroid and anesthetic? Because I think a lot of people think, oh, I'll just go get a steroid shot. Exactly.
1: Can you tell me more about that. Yeah. So, um, you know, you go and get your knee injected with a steroid. A steroid is, you know, ibuprofen is an NSAID. NSAID is a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory. So the next step up is a steroidal anti-inflammatory. So you've got a high-powered anti-inflammatory that you're injecting into a joint, into a ligament, a muscle, etc., So it's great. It reduces inflammation, it makes you feel better, it takes about three to 10 days to kick in. However, it does other things. So it increases your blood glucose level for about 48 hours. So if you're diabetic, your sugars are gonna go through the roof. So you always wanna keep that in mind if you're getting an injection. That steroid can be floating around in your body for about three months. So if you get your knee injected one day and then two weeks later you go and get a back injection, you gotta kinda keep track of how many steroid injections am I getting on like a yearly basis, on a bi-yearly basis. Most of your doctors aren't at the same place, so they don't know you got that steroid injection. So you want to keep in mind to tell the next doctor what you've had done. Um, then people take oral steroids. Oral steroids can do... Prednisone? Yeah, prednisone, methylprednisolone, commonly known as a Medrol dose pack. And you know, if you take too many oral steroids, you can have really bad effects like avascular necrosis of the hips, oh, for instance. Oh, jeez. Yeah. Yeah, it can get really nasty. So you just want to keep... Uh, m- be mindful of how much steroid you're getting. Steroids are good when they're needed and they're helpful, but they can be bad when they're overused or mm-hmm. not used properly.
0: Is there a too much
1: amount? There is, but nobody knows what it is. So, oh, great. like you said, we're, gonna <laughs> yeah, we're practicing ten years behind. This is true. So, in a petri dish in a lab, the, that steroid is you know ruining cartilage cells, but in our bodies, physiologically, mm-hmm. are, is it doing the same thing? Nobody knows. So. It's better just to be on the conservative safe side rather than be on the aggressive side, just in case.
0: You can't really have a research study where you give someone too many steroid shots because that's very unethical. Yes, I think Knowing that it's going to have a negative response. Yeah, IRB
1: is not going to go for that. (laughs) Yes,
0: okay. Because, yeah, I mean, I have a lot of people that ask or that have had one and that I've had a lot of people who've had... So many. So many. And I'm like, is this allowed? Like is this legal? Is this yeah. what you're supposed to be doing? But like you said, going to different places Yep. I don't I don't know if everybody knows.
1: No, and a lot of people will doctor shop. I don't know, I shouldn't say they're doctor shopping, but they will go to different doctors to, to see who's going to give them what they want. Mm. So some doctors just go with it because again, they're getting paid for their time and they don't want to argue with somebody. I've been through many arguments with patients about not doing another injection. It's too soon. It's too early. Mm-hmm. We've done too many. And, um, they get very heated in arguing with me, but you know, my, my oath is to do no harm. So that's yeah. another pri- priority. So, you are now
0: transitioning to work in another practice, right? right. Can you yeah. tell me what that's going to look like?
1: Yeah. Um, so this is a, a private group. They've been around for a long time. Um, there's 10, nine orthopedic surgeons and one non-operative physician there. They seem like a great group of guys. Um, they've covered local sports teams. They've taken care of the elderly, the young, the athletic population, they just seem like really good people. They're based out in the north area and um, they've never had someone like myself join them so I'm really excited to collaborate with them and uh, see what I can do to to work with them and help their patients out with some of their difficult situations. Um, I also do nerve conduction tests for people mm. with like, carpal tunnels so it would mm-hmm. be nice to help those hand surgeons out there. Um, but we are planning on building a new satellite um, office up in Somerville. So that's where all the growth's going from what I hear. And so I'm really yeah. excited to be up in that area as well. Because a lot of my patients are already up there. And I've been in Mount Pleasant for the past 10 years. Oh, okay. Yeah, so it's going to be fun. I I think that I, I will still practice the way I have been practicing. But I want to focus more on like look good and feel good. So, you know, maybe incorporating a little bit of aesthetics into the practice. Who knows? Um, and then, you know forming relationships with, you know, groups like your group and really getting people the all well rounded healthcare mm-hmm. experience.
0: Yeah. And that's do we feel like that's new or like
1: doesn't exist yet or it's new? I think it's new. It probably exists in small markets, and I don't know if anybody has conquered it or been super successful with it yet, but I think that that's what has to happen with the way our world's changing, and if we don't change, then we're all going to have tech neck.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. (laughs) Yeah, I wonder, you know, 10 years ago, the things that we're doing now, we're probably like, what? What are you doing? Right. So in 10 years from (laughs) now, oh my gosh. In 10 years from now... We're like, I don't even know what to expect. Like regenerative medicine might be the thing that we're doing or totally. like maybe we're not comparing people's capsules to to frying bacon. That's, <laughs> that's something that we thought was the next big thing, but then was it's not. Maybe we
1: we'll, won't, we won't even be eating bacon. Oh <gasps> no. no. Not, just a little bit. I I
0: Everything in moderation. Yes. We got to <laughs> that's the thing. That's what's hard with our society is it? it is very all or nothing. Like we said before, Too available. Is that... I mean, it's so easy. Yeah. Yeah. We either think doctors are, but you know, we should trust everything they say, or, like, now all of a sudden, we don't trust anything they say. Right. So, like, why are we swinging back and forth? That's our society, though. It is. It's so, good. how do you feel like you Because, obviously, I think your philosophy and your beliefs... I think they're unique. I think they're very needed, but I think they're unique. Thanks.
1: How do you feel, like, what do you do differently? That's a great question. Um, I never thought I did things differently until I started listening to patients' experiences with other practices and other physician groups. That's what you all have been doing? To say it nicely. Yes. And I don't like to you know, judge other people's way of doing things, but, um, I I think that I, I never took the textbook as truth, and I always thought outside the book, I thought it was a great basis of always do the safe thing, but I always like to think functionally, I hate to keep bringing that word up, function, but, you know, why does this person have butt pain if they don't have a bad back, or they're, you know don't have an SI joint issue you know what is causing this buttock to hurt you know and and just it's stuff that keeps me up at night so it's it's listening to the patient I mean taking a good history a lot of times doctors are too busy for that or they send in a medical assistant to take a history I like to take the history I like to get the story I like to put my hands on them And then go from there. And I always tell them, you know, I might be wrong. Here's my list of top three things that might be wrong with you. Let's start with my my gut feeling and go from there. And as long as people buy into it and they give me the time, I can usually figure most things out. But I really just invest everything I've got into the patients and trying to figure it out. It sounds like you're very transparent with them.
0: And the honesty and the, like, hey, I'm a human too, and this is what I, I know and think based off what you've told me. I think it's
1: huge for relationship building. Absolutely. And never be afraid to say, I really don't know, but I will try to find somebody who might know. Why are we so afraid of saying that? I don't know. Maybe it's the personality type, the, you know, you're ambitious, you go far in life, you're a physician and you just can't fathom the idea of not being nice. Not knowing. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I am okay with it. (laughs) Yeah. It's also like, There's probably a little bit of, like,
0: the imposter syndrome of, like, if I don't know this, like, should I know? Right. But, like, I'm sure just in life in general, there's so many things that you know that I don't. Yes. And vice versa. Like, you flip houses. I don't know anything about (laughs) that. You know? A lot of doctors don't. And we're okay with that. When it comes to our profession, it's, like, this identity thing. And also to the patient, if they see us as I don't know then they don't trust us. Right. It's like this fine line of being like, oh yeah, like I might be wrong. We don't want them to lose confidence in us, but we also want to be
1: transparent with them. Some people are going to love it. Yeah. And some people, yeah, some people it's not a good fit. And I've had plenty of people that, you know, end up going somewhere else and they're super happy and, um, that's fine. Um, it happens. But I, I just like to try to relate to the patient somehow. That's why I usually will ask them you know, where they're from or mm-hmm. get an idea of something else going on in their life because you can really get to know a person based on you know, what kind of profession did they do or where they retired from. you know, where are Where's their family? What's their background? I mean, you can get a lot of information from stuff like that too. And plus it's establishing that rapport and allowing that person to open up to you and give mm-hmm. you all the information you need.
0: Oh yeah. Um, I've had experiences like, I mean, I got my wisdom teeth out and like maybe they don't need to know that much about me for that. But like the, the surgeon literally walked in the room, didn't look at me and my mom, turned around, started typing, asked me all of the questions while he's facing a computer. And then he was like, okay, I'll see you next week. And just walked out and we were like... What just happened exactly? Like, <laughs> you're gonna cut that's you. That's <laughs>
1: horrifying, that is unacceptable. And that's
0: wisdom teeth. Like, okay, maybe that's less, it's not bad back surgery,
1: but still, anything yeah. can go wrong during a wisdom teeth extraction. Oh, God.
0: That's good <laughs> <laughs> nothing went wrong. I'm okay. He actually ended up being nice. Day of surgery, good. Um, I remember the nurse, and that's this. I can't say it, yeah. My friends will kill me. Crna, the crna's, um, <laughs> they were amazing, they were oh, super, yes. super helpful. So there's also the side of quote-unquote pain management that's the anesthesiologist, right? Right. Can you
1: differentiate between these two things? Sure. So we have different backgrounds in training is the best way to explain it. So, and there's also psychiatrists and primary care doctors can go in pain management. So. Uh, When you go, you go to medical school for four years and then you decide what specialty you want to go into. So if you want to be an eye doctor, you go to an ophthalmology residency. And then most likely, if you decide you want to be a retina specialist, then you do a retina fellowship. So orthopedic surgeons decide, am I going to be a hand person, a sports person, a back surgeon? They do a fellowship. Anesthesiologists go through their anesthesiology training, which includes, you know, putting people to sleep, um, doing blocks, um, mainly managing inpatient Patients. Mm -hmm. And then they do a year fellowship in pain management where they learn how to do epidural blocks, nerve blocks, you know, rhizotomies where you burn nerves, Mm -hmm. a lot of pain management uh, procedures. And they get a year's worth of training on that. Physiatry, where I went through physical medicine rehabilitation, you learn a wide variety of things, including inpatient rehab. So people who are post stroke, post um, head injury, spinal cord injury, you learn how to manage their therapies to get them back to um, restore their function. And mm-hmm. then in the, you also learn how to do EMG tests, which is six months of training. You learn some sports medicine. You learn musculoskeletal medicine in the outpatient setting. And then you do a month of pain management. You do a bunch of elective work in pain management. You do pediatric rehab. You do a lot of stuff, but a lot of it has to do with musculoskeletal, neuromusculoskeletal, Medicine. So you're literally the experts on nerves, bones, mm-hmm. muscle tissue, and function. And then you can do extra training in pain management if you so choose. But you have a r- great basis of information to treat a wide variety of musculoskeletal injuries from your residency versus anesthesiologists don't get all that background training, but they get everything they need to manage pain, especially medication-wise. Yeah.
0: Like, when I think of an anesthesiologist, obviously I think of surgery putting you to sleep. Passing gas. Passing gas. Yep. gas. <laughs> this is a weird question, but obviously, like, we all have differing beliefs and ways that we treat based on, I think, a lot of our experiences. What do you feel like allows you to think differently? Like knowing that what people, what you do and what you realize is that you do things differently. You do treat, I don't know, out of the box or something that's more of like lifestyle medicine, which honestly me saying that, like it should be in the box very much. What do you think led you to like be so open to that and to, and to believe those things? You know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah, I know what you
1: mean. And I don't think I've ever thought about that. It just sort of naturally happened, I guess. Um, you know, I grew up in Southern Illinois where everybody was from a farming area. So I grew up outside doing manual labor, doing healthy things, but not realizing I was being healthy and active. And then I went to college and I played a Division One sport. So I was forced to be very active. <laughs> and then I graduate college and then I immediately... Um, lose weight get what I call fat skinny so I lost mm. all my muscle tone I didn't nobody was yelling at me making me lift weights and I was you know jogging a little bit just mm-hmm. to keep my mind straight and then I got to medical school and you know you're got your nose in a book and I realized how awfully stressed out I got I started getting pains in my neck and mm. more pain in my shoulder and I wasn't active whatsoever um so then I got back into doing beach volleyball and I was feeling so much better and then I went to residency and I I saw the worst that can happen to you. You get a stroke and you lose function of half of your body, for instance. Mm. And then I realized that life's too short. I need to take care of myself. And then, you know, just how you evolve as a physician and you start talking to people and you realize you can make simple little changes in their diet or their lifestyle or their exercise regimen and you can make huge differences. So it sort of just naturally came about as I progressed in my career, I would say. So why is everyone doing that then? It's hard. It's easier to sit back and, you know, gain weight and not not work hard, you know? I mean, my elbow hurts from playing volleyball last weekend, and I could just not play volleyball, and my elbow would feel fine. So it's I think it's just a level of motivation, and I don't know why people don't realize it. And you know what it is, too? When I talk to people who want to lose weight, I wish I could put them in a skinny suit for a day so they could feel how much better they would feel. Because most of the people, when I get them to lose a significant amount of weight, they come back and they say... I never could imagine how good I'd feel Mm. with more energy. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, it takes less to move myself. Mm -hmm. So it's letting people sample what it would feel like to feel healthy. You know, a lot of this has to do with nutrition too. So some of the patients, I'll recommend they do this 10-day, you know, I hate calling it a cleanse, but it's sort of like a... Let's make you eat all the good things that your body needs for 10 days and see how you right feel. Deal. You know, day three, you feel awful because you haven't had caffeine or alcohol, mm-hmm. you know, but want you get over that hump, and I did it myself before I recommended to people, I felt like a million bucks. I felt like I was 18 again. Can I sustain that diet with two children eating chicken nuggets every day? No chance.
0: <laughs> but like what part of that can you
1: sustain? Can you pull right. out of that? Yeah. So what I got out of that was I don't need to have a glass of wine every night. Um, I feel better in the morning when I don't do that. Mm-hmm. I I can have a green shake every once in a while instead of getting a frozen cheeseburger out of the fr- frozen freezer. frozen cheeseburger. Oh, yeah. It's so gravy. available. It's available. The bun is on. It's so good.
0: Is that even good? <laughs> Where do you get that? Costco? Yes. Say, <laughs> I used to have the frozen taquitos oh, yes. in the summer when, like, my parents were like, "Well, just like eat whatever," and they were so good, so good. Especially yeah. so,
1: when you know, when you're 16 years old, it doesn't matter. But now, in your 40s, everything you eat, you are what you eat. The serotonin is released from your stomach. That's why you feel different when you eat better. Mm. Um, you could have a whole podcast on nutrition. I'm sure there's plenty out there, but you know, just getting people to buy into it, to try it, and to have that feeling, they're sold. It's the same thing, like, we have to get people to realize that their health is a
0: priority. Yeah. Like, you realize, what happens if I don't have my health? What happens if I'm, not, if I'm not able to be active? Right. What happens if I don't, I'm not able to, to do those things? It's like, there used to be this little, um, what do you call it, like, comic from a newspaper. Do we still have newspapers? I guess we do. <laughs> I haven't seen one in a while. No um, in a clinic that I did a rotation in and it was like you either deal with your sickness now or like you deal with it later right. or something like that. And it's like you're going to have like choose your hard. It's either going to be hard now because you're making, you know, hard changes or you're exercising and it's hard and sometimes it hurts or you're like quitting your job and finding another one and like making these really uncomfortable decisions so that you can feel better or you're going to have to deal with the effects of your lifestyle yep. and your chronic stress and your possible depression and unhappiness and sedentariness in how many years? Right. To I,
1: choose it. On top of that same thought is expensive foods and activities, you know, having a personal trainer paying mm-hmm. cash for your PT, paying for, organic greens, you want to pay for it now? Or would you like to pay for expensive medication when you're unable to move because you didn't take care of yourself younger? I always like to look at it that way. Expensive food or expensive medication? Take your pick. Yeah, you're going to pay for it. It's tough. And then back to the transparency thing. So if I get somebody to buy into this, you know, I tell them all about, I did the cleanse, I felt great. Or, you know, I did this exercise program. I saw this physical therapist. They fixed my neck. And I'm trying to sell this to a patient. I always say... Full disclosure, I need to take my own advice, but I'm stuck in chicken nugget hell with a five and a seven year old. <laughs> and that makes you relatable too. Exactly. I'm like, believe me, I need to do all these things. I've done them in spurts in my career, but not all at once. So I'm giving this advice that I need to take. And my mom did that to me the whole time I grew up. You oh, know? Goodness. Do as I say, not as I do. <laughs> yeah. It's
0: real. I mean, none of us are perfect. Right. We all are trying. And it doesn't mean that you have to do all of these things perfectly to feel better or to be healthy. Yeah. But it's that you can start doing some of these things. Like, I'm always preaching, get more sleep, don't burn out, like, do all those things. But, like, then I work during lunch or then I go to sleep at 11 and wake up at, at 5.30 and I'm like, it's okay, it's just me. And yeah. Like, oh, shoot. Like, I have to also look myself in the mirror and practice what I preach. But I think there's a huge side of that that's, like, giving yourself grace. And it shows, like, if you were, like – I am the most holy, thou, healthiest doctor. I have my fitness routine and my stress. My kids are angels. Like, you'd be unrelatable and then be like, you don't really understand me. Right.
1: How does that person do that? It's impossible. Yeah.
0: When you said, uh, what what do people say? Oh, like, you wouldn't understand because, like, you're skinny. Yeah. I get, you're 26. You have no idea. Right. And I'm like, I get it. Like, you're right. Like, I don't feel what you feel. Right. And you don't feel what I feel. And you don't know what I know. And I don't know what you know. But I don't go to an accountant and they tell me what to do. And then I'm like, you're absolutely wrong. Good point. I, I, same thing for a lawyer. Like, the lawyer's charging per hour. Good for them. And I, when you go to a lawyer, you're usually in a situation that you care a lot about and that affects you. And you're like, I'll listen to whatever you said. Like, sure, I'll pay you ten thousand dollars if that's going to help me from not paying it later. Exactly. So while we don't want to terrify people in our healthcare system because we want to be positive, you know, encouraging guides, we also have to be a little bit more upfront. Like, hey, if you don't deal with this thing now, sure, we know that you're very capable and resilient. You might improve on your own. Like, that's great. I know you can do that. But how does this affect you in twenty years? Or like, what are the possibilities? What happens if you don't get help with your knee pain? What happens if you have to never pick anything up again? Right. It's just like the long term, and people are like, oh, uh-oh. That is, that's a hard realization. Sometimes it takes that. I think it's, it always usually takes a breaking point to change your actions. Right.
1: You know, I think we've all had breaking points. Have you had any breaking points? Um, I think, you know, in in leaving academic medicine, it was sort of a breaking point. Um, you know i I uh, spun my wheels long enough in frustration and helping as many people as I could with um, academic resources. And now it's it's uh, time to try it on my own. You know, I've I've been preaching this for so long. I've you know done it for ten years now in practice. I think that I can do it my way, and I'm not sure that my way is better way. But and I might you know realize that having somebody else ca- cover all your overhead uh, is better. But um, I've got to try. I've got to see if I can make even more of a difference on my own. For sure, I love yeah. that.
0: This has been awesome. Thank you so much. Um, can you tell us where
1: the new place? will be... Yeah, so the new place is going to be located up in the north area, somewhere in Somerville. So okay. we'll Keep you guessing. In the for next now. town, would you say? Next in Nexton? Yeah, next <laughs> town. Was oh, that where it comes from? I don't know. I think so, though. I'm
0: like we couldn't come. I'm up excited anywhere. about it,
1: though. It looks like a cool place to practice. So uh, mid September. Actually, I'm starting oh, wow. on my birthday. <laughs>
0: oh, okay. When's your birthday?
1: September 20th. Nice.
0: Yeah. That's exciting. That's right. Um, I always joke like. But we have, we have James Island, and John's Island, and Mount Pleasant, and Daniel Island, and Somerville, and Nexton. Nexton, <laughs> like, yeah. just
1: doesn't work. Makes you wonder where that came from. Yeah. Hmm.
0: Uh, I think it's the next town. Yeah, so we'll see you yeah. in, in uh, near the next town. Sounds good. Yeah. See thank you, you, Emily. This has been awesome. Oh, my pleasure. That's Everyone, great. thank you for listening. Thank you so much for joining us, everyone. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Head on over to Instagram. Find us at Healthy Charleston. Leave us a review on iTunes. If you ever have any topics you want us to talk about or guests you want to bring on, feel free to DM us. Otherwise, thanks again.